Podcastle, episode number 89, for February 2nd, 2010. The Queen's Triplets, by Israel Zangwill. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. Sometimes, Rachel has been generous enough to call me a co-editor, but the fact of the matter is, I don't actually ever get to pick stories. A lot of times, when something I think is fabulous comes in, Rachel has agreed with me, but sometimes, not entirely. In the end, I'm a slush reader whose advice she often, but not always, takes. I don't get to call the shots. For instance, if Pseudopod hadn't already run it, I would be just about to introduce Weiler Kaftan's Break the Vessel, which is an awesome story, and if you haven't already, you should go over to Pseudopod and give it a listen. Anyway, this month, I get to pick whatever I want. So to start you off, I give you The Queen's Triplets by Israel Zangwill. He was born in London in 1864 and died in 1926. He was a playwright and also a mystery writer, and his book The Big Bow Mystery is considered the first locked room novel. He's sadly no longer as famous as some of his friends, people like H.G. Wells and Jerome K. Jerome. The Queen's Triplets is extracted from his 1894 book The King of Schnorrers. It's read by Steve Anderson, who does freelance acting, voiceover work, storytelling, living history, and educational and interactive theater. You can find out more, or even hire him for your own voice acting needs, at www.sgacreative.com or www.greattaleslive.com. The Queen of Triplets, a nursery tale for the old. Once upon a time, there was a queen who unexpectedly gave birth to three princes. They were all so exactly alike that after a moment or two, it was impossible to remember which was the eldest or which was the youngest. Any two of them, sort them how you pleased, were always twins. They all cried in the same key and with the same comic grimaces. In short, there was not a hair's breadth of difference between them. Not that they had a hair's breadth between them, for, like most babies, they were prematurely bald. The king was very much put out. He did not mind the expense of keeping three heir apparents, for that fell on the country and was defrayed by an impost called the queen's tax. But it was the consecrated custom of the kingdom that the crown should pass over to the eldest son, and the absence of accurate knowledge upon this point was perplexing. A triumvirate was out of the question, the multiplication of monarchs would be vexation to the people, and the rule of three would drive them mad. The queen was just as annoyed, though on different grounds. She felt it hard enough to be the one mother in the realm who could not get the queen's bounty without having to suffer the king's reproaches. Her heart was broken, and she died soon after of laryngitis. To distinguish the triplets when it was too late, they were always dressed one in green, one in blue, and one in black, the colors of the national standard and naturally got to be popularly known by the sobriquets of the Green Prince, the Blue Prince, and the Black Prince. Every year they got older and older till at last they became young men. And every year the king got older and older 
till at last he became an old man, and the fear crept into his heart that he might be restored to his wife and leave the kingdom embroiled in civil feud unless he settled straight away who should be the heir. But, being human, notwithstanding his court laureates, he put off the disagreeable duty from day to day, and might have died without an heir, if the envoys from Paphlagonia had not aroused him to the necessity of a decision. For they announced that the princess of Paphlagonia, being suddenly orphaned, would be sent to him in the twelfth moon, that she might marry his eldest son, as covenanted by ancient treaty. This was the last straw. But I don't know who is my eldest son, yelled the king, who had a vast respect for covenants and the constitution. In great perturbation he repaired to a famous oracle, at that time worked by a priestess with her hair let down her back. The king asked her a plain question, Who is my eldest son? After foaming at the mouth like an open champagne bottle, she replied, The eldest is he that the princess shall wed. The king said he knew that already, and was curtly told that if the replies did not give satisfaction, he could go elsewhere. So he went to the wise men and the magicians, and held a levy of them and they gave him such goodly counsel that the chief magician was henceforth honored with the privilege of holding the green, black, and blue tricolor over the king's head at mealtimes. Soon after, it being the twelfth moon, the king set forward with a little retinue to meet the princess of Paphlagonia, whose coming had got abroad, but returned two days later with the news that the princess was confined to her room and would not arrive in the city till next year. On the last day of the year the king summoned the three princes to the presence chamber, and they came, the green prince, and the blue prince, and the black prince, and made obeisance to the monarch who sat in moire antique robes on the old gold throne with his courtiers all around him. My sons, he said, ye are aware that according to the immemorial laws of the realm one of you is to be my heir, only I know not which of you he is. The difficulty is complicated by the fact that I have covenanted to espouse him to the princess of Paphlagonia, of whose imminent arrival ye have heard. In this dilemma there are those who would set the sovereignty of the state upon the hazard of a die. But not by such undignified methods do I deem it prudent to extort the designs of the gods. There are ways alike more honorable to you and to me of ascertaining the intentions of the fates. And first the wise men and the magicians recommend that ye be all three sent forth upon an arduous emprise. As all men know, somewhere in the great seas that engirdle our dominion, somewhere beyond the ultimate thule, there rangeth a vast monster intolerable not to be born. Every ninth moon this creature approacheth our coasts, deluging the land with an inky vomit. This plaguy serpent cannot be slain, 
for the soothsayers aver it beareth a charmed life. But it were a mighty achievement if for only one year the realm could be relieved of its oppression. Are ye willing to set forth separately upon this nightly quest? Then the three princes made enthusiastic answer, entreating to be sped on the journey forthwith, and a great gladness ran through the presence chamber, for all had suffered much from the annual incursions of the monster, and the king's heart was fain of the gallant spirit of the princes. "'Tis well,' said he, "'to-morrow, at the first dawn of the new year, shall ye fare forth together.' When ye reach the river ye shall part, and for eight moons shall ye wander whither ye will. Only when the ninth moon rises shall ye return and tell me how ye have fared. Hasten now, therefore, and equip yourselves as ye desire, and if there be aught that will help you in the task, ye have but to ask for it. Then, answering quickly before his brothers could speak, the black prince cried, Sire, I would crave the magic boat which saileth under the sea and destroyeth mighty armaments. It is thine, replied the king. Then the green prince said, Sire, grant me the magic car which saileth through the air over the great seas. The black prince started and frowned, but the king answered, It is granted. Then, turning to the blue prince, who seemed lost in meditation, the king said, why art thou silent, my son? Is there nothing I can give thee? Thanks, I will take a little pigeon, answered the blue prince abstractedly. The courtiers stared and giggled, and the black prince chuckled. But the blue prince was seemingly too proud to back out of his request. So at sunrise on the morrow the three princes set forth, journeying together till they came to the river where they had agreed to part company. Here the magic boat was floating at anchor, while the magic car was tied to the trunk of a plane tree upon the bank, and the little pigeon, fastened by a thread, was fluttering among the branches. Now, when the green prince saw the puny pigeon, he was like to die of laughing. <laughs> Dost thou think to feed the serpent with thy pigeon? he sneered. I fear me thou wilt not choke him off thus. And what hast thou to laugh at? retorted the black prince, interposing. Dost thou think to find the serpent of the sea in the air? He is always in the air, murmured the blue prince inaudibly. Nay, said the green prince, scratching his head dubiously. But thou didst so hastily annex the magic boat, I had to take the next best thing. Dost thou accuse me of unfairness? cried the black prince in a pained voice. Sooner than thou shouldst say that, I would change with thee. Wouldst thou indeed? inquired the green prince eagerly. Ay, that I would, said the black prince indignantly. Take the magic boat, and may the gods speed thee. So saying, he jumped briskly into the magic car, cut the rope, and sailed aloft. Then, looking down contemptuously upon the blue prince, he shouted, Come, mount thy pigeon, and be off in search of a monster. But the blue prince replied, I will await you here.
Then the green prince pushed off his boat, chuckling louder than ever. <laughs> Dost thou expect to keep the creature off our coasts by guarding the head of the river? he scoffed. But the blue prince replied, I will await you both here till the ninth moon. No sooner were his brothers gone than the blue prince set about building a hut. Here he lived happily, fishing his meals out of the river or snaring them out of the sky. The pigeon was never for a moment in danger of being eaten. It was employed more agreeably to itself and its master in operations which will appear anon. Most of the time the blue prince lay on his back among the wild flowers, watching the river rippling to the sea or counting the passing of the eight moons that alternately swelled and dwindled, now showing like the orb of the black prince's car, now like the green prince's boat. Sometimes he read scraps of papyrus, and his face shone. One lovely starry night, as the blue prince was watching the heavens, it seemed to him as if the eighth moon in dying had dropped out of the firmament and was falling upon him. But it was only the black prince come back. His garments were powdered with snow, his brows were knitted gloomily. He had a dejected, despondent aspect. Thou here, he snapped. Of course, said the blue prince cheerfully, though he seemed a little embarrassed all the same. Haven't I been here all the time? But go into my hut. I've kept supper hot for thee. Has the green prince had his? No, I haven't seen anything of him. Hast thou scotched the serpent? No, I haven't seen anything of him, growled the black prince. I've passed backwards and forwards over the entire face of the ocean, but nowhere have I caught the slightest glimpse of him. What a fool I was to give up the magic boat. He never seems to come to the surface. All this while the blue prince was dragging his brother with suspicious solicitude towards the hut, where he sat him down to his own supper of ortolans and oysters. But the host had no sooner run outside again, on the pretext of seeing if the green prince was coming, than there was a disturbance and eddying in the stream as of a rally of water rats, and the magic boat shot up like a catapult, and the green prince stepped on deck all dry and dusty and with the air of a draggled dragonfly. Good evening, hast thou uh, scotched the serpent? stammered the blue prince, taken aback. No, I haven't seen anything of him, growled the green prince. I have skimmed along the entire surface of the ocean and sailed every inch beneath it, but nowhere have I caught the slightest glimpse of him. What a fool I was to give up the magic car. From a height I could have commanded an ampler area of ocean. Perhaps he was up the river. No, I haven't seen anything of him, replied the blue prince hastily. But go into my hut. Thy supper must be getting quite cold. He hurried his verdant brother into the hut and gave him some chestnuts out of the oven. It was the best he could do for him, and then rushed outside again on the plea of seeing if the serpent was coming. But he seemed to expect him to come from the sky, for, leaning against the trunk of the plane tree by the river, he resumed his anxious scrutiny of the constellations. Presently there was a gentle whirring in the air and a white bird became visible, flying rapidly downwards in his direction. Almost at the same instant he felt himself pinioned by a rope to the tree trunk, 
and saw the legs of the alighting pigeon neatly prisoned by the Black Prince's fist. Aha! croaked the Black Prince triumphantly. Now we shall see through thy little schemes. He detached the slip of papyrus which dangled from the pigeon's neck. How darest thou read my letters? gasped the Blue Prince. If I dare to rob the mail, I shall certainly not hesitate to read the letters, answered the Black Prince coolly, and went on to enunciate slowly, for the light was bad, the following lines. Heart sick, I watch the old moon's lingering death, and long upon my face to feel thy breath. I burn to see its final flicker die, and greet our moon of honey in the sky. What is all this moonshine? he concluded in bewilderment. Now the blue prince was the soul of candor, and seeing that nothing could now be lost by telling the truth, he answered, This is a letter from a damsel who resideth in the tower of Telephonia on the outskirts of the capital. We are engaged. No doubt the language seemeth to thee a little overdone, but wait till thy turn cometh. And so thou hast employed this pigeon as a carrier between thee and this suburban young person, cried the black prince, feeling vaguely boiling over with rage. Even so, answered his brother, but guard thy tongue. The lady of whom thou speakest so disrespectfully is none other than the princess of Paphlagonia. What? gasped the black prince. She hath resided there since the twelfth moon of last year. The king received her the first time he set out to meet her. Dost thou dare say the king hath spoken untruth? Nay, nay, the king is a wise man. Wise men never mean what they say. The king said she was confined to her room. It is true, for he had confined her in the tower with her maidens, for fear she should fall in love with the wrong prince or the reverse, before the rightful heir was discovered. The king said she would not arrive in the city till next year. This also is true. As thou didst rightly observe, the tower of Telephonia is situated in the suburbs." The king did not bargain for my discovering that a beautiful woman lived in its topmost turret. Nay, how couldst thou discover that? The king did not lend thee the magic car, and thou certainly couldst not see her at that height without the magic glass. I have not seen her, but through the embrasure I often saw the sunlight flashing and leaping like a thing of life and I knew it was what the children call a Johnny Noddy. Now a Johnny Noddy argueth a mirror, and a mirror argueth a woman, and frequent use thereof argueth a beautiful woman. So when in the presence chamber the king told us of his dilemma as to the hand of the princess of Paphlagonia, it instantly dawned upon me who the beautiful woman was, and why the king was keeping her hidden away, and why he had hidden away his meaning also. Wherefore straightway I asked for a pigeon, knowing that the pigeons of the town roost on the tower of Telephonia, so that I had but to fly my bird at the end of a long string like a kite to establish communication between me and the fair captive. In time my little messenger grew so used to the journey to and fro that I could dispense with the string. 
Our courtship has been most satisfactory. We love each other ardently, and— But you have never seen each other, interrupted the Black Prince. Thou forgettest, we are both royal personages, said the Blue Prince, in astonished reproof. But this is gross treachery! What right hadst thou to make these underhand advances in our absence? Thou forgettest, I had to scotch the serpent, said the Blue Prince, in astonished reproof. Thou forgettest also that she can only marry the heir to the throne. Ah, true, said the Black Prince, considerably relieved. And as thou hast chosen to fritter away the time in making love to her, thou hast taken the best way to lose her. Thou forgettest I shall have to marry her, said the Blue Prince in astonished reproof not only because I have given my word to a lady, but because I have promised the king to do my best to scotch the serpent of the sea. Really, thou seemest terribly dull today. Let me put the matter in a nutshell. If he who scotches the sea serpent is to marry the princess, then would I scotch the sea serpent by marrying the princess, and marry the princess to scotch the sea serpent. Thou hast searched the face of the sea, and our brother has dragged its depths, and nowhere have ye seen the sea serpent. Yet in the ninth moon he will surely come, and the land will be covered with an inky vomit as in former years. But if I marry the princess of Paphlagonia in the ninth moon, the royal wedding will ward off the sea serpent and not a scribe will shed ink to tell of his advent. Therefore, instead of ranging through the earth, I stayed at home and paid my addresses to the— Yes, yes, what a fool I was, interrupted the black prince, smiting his brow with his palm, so that the pigeon escaped from between his fingers and winged its way back to the tower of Telephonia, as if to carry his words to the princess. Thou forgettest, thou art a fool still, said the Blue Prince, in astonished reproof. Prithee, unbind me forthwith. Nay, I am a fool no longer, for it is I that shall wed the Princess of Paphlagonia and scotch the sea serpent. It is I that have sent the pigeon to and fro, and unless thou makest me thine oath to be silent on the matter, I will slay thee and cast thy body into the river. Thou forgettest our brother, the Green Prince, said the Blue Prince in astonished reproof. Bah, he hath eyes for naught but the odd ortolans and oysters I sacrificed, that he might gorge himself withal, while I spied out thy secret. He shall be told that I returned to exchange my car for thy pigeon, even as I exchanged my boat for his car. Come, thine oath, or thou diest. And a jeweled scimitar shimmered in the starlight. The Blue Prince reflected that though life without love was hardly worth living, death was quite useless. So he swore and went in to supper. When he found that the Green Prince had not spared even a baked chestnut before he fell asleep, he swore again. And on the morrow, when the princes approached the Tower of Telephonia with its flashing Johnny Noddy, they met a courier from the king, 
who, having informed himself of the Black Prince's success, ran ahead with the rumor thereof. And lo, when the princes passed through the city gate, they found the whole population abroad, clad in all their bravery, and flags flying, and bells ringing, and roses showering from the balconies, and merry music swelling in all the streets, for joy of the prospect of the sea serpent's absence. And when the new moon rose, the three princes, escorted by flute-players, hied them to the presence-chamber, and the king embraced his sons, and the black prince stood forward and explained that if a prince were married in the ninth moon, it would prevent the monster's annual visit. Then the king fell upon the black prince's neck and wept and said, My son, my son, my pet, my baby, my tuxicums, my popsy-wopsy. And then, recovering himself and addressing the courtiers, he said, the gods have enabled me to discover my youngest son, if they will only now continue as propitious, so that I may discover the elder of the other two, I shall die not all unhappy. But the black prince could repress his astonishment no longer. Am I dreaming, sire? he cried. Surely I have proved myself the eldest, not the youngest. Thou forgettest that thou hast come off successful, replied the king, in astonished reproof. Or art thou so ignorant of history, or of the sacred narratives handed down to us by our ancestors, that thou art unaware that when three brothers set out on the same quest, it is always the youngest brother that emerges triumphant? Such is the will of the gods." Cease, therefore, thy blasphemous talk, lest they overhear thee and be put out. A low, ominous murmur from the courtiers emphasized the king's warning. But the princess, she at least is mine, protested the unhappy prince. We love each other, we are engaged. Thou forgettest she can only marry the heir, replied the king in astonished reproof. Wouldst thou have us repudiate our solemn treaty? But I wasn't really the, the first to hit on the idea at all, cried the black prince desperately. Ask the blue prince, he never telleth untruth. Thou forgettest, I have taken an oath of silence on the matter, replied the blue prince in astonished reproof. The black prince it was that first hit on the idea, volunteered the green prince. He exchanged his boat for the car, and the car for the pigeon. So the three princes were dismissed, while the king took counsel with the magicians and the wise men, who never mean what they say. And the court chamberlain, wearing the orchid of office in his buttonhole, was sent to interview the princess, and returned, saying that she refused to marry anyone but the proprietor of the pigeon, and that she still had his letters as evidence in case of his marrying anyone else. Bah, said the king, she shall obey the treaty. Six feet of parchment are not to be put aside for the whim of a girl five foot eight. The only real difficulty remaining is to decide whether the blue prince or the green prince is the elder. Let me see, what was it the oracle said? Perhaps it will be clearer now. The eldest is he that the princess shall wed. No. It still seems merely to avoid stating anything new. 
Pardon me, sire, replied the chief magician. It seems perfectly plain now. Obviously, thou art to let the princess choose her husband, and the oracle guarantees that, other things being equal, she shall select the eldest. If thou hadst let her have the pick from among the three, she would have selected the one with whom she was in love, the black prince, to it, and that would have interfered with the oracle's arrangements. But now that we know with whom she is in love, we can remove that one, and then there being no reason why she should choose the green prince rather than the blue prince, the deities of the realm undertake to inspire her to go by age only. Thou hast spoken well, said the king. Let the princess of Paphlagonia be brought, and let the two princes return. So, after a space, the beautiful princess, preceded by trumpeters, was conducted to the palace, blinking her eyes at the unaccustomed splendor of the lights. And the king and all the courtiers blinked their eyes, dazzled by her loveliness. She was clad in white samite, and on her shoulder was perched a pet pigeon. The king sat in his moiré robes on the old gold throne, and the blue prince stood on his right hand, and the green prince on his left, the black prince as the youngest having been sent to bed early. The princess courtesied three times, the third time so low that the pigeon was flustered and flew off her shoulder, and, after circling about, alighted on the head of the blue prince. It is the crown, said the chief magician in an awestruck voice. Then the princess's eyes looked around in search of the pigeon, and when they lighted on the prince's head they kindled as the grey sea kindles at sunrise. An answering radiance shone in the blue prince's eyes, as, taking the pigeon that nestled in his hair, he let it fly towards the princess. But the princess, her bosom heaving as if another pigeon fluttered beneath the white samite, caught it and set it free again and again it made for the blue prince. Three times the bird sped to and fro. Then the princess raised her humid eyes heavenward, and from her sweet lips rippled like music the verse, Last night I watched its final flicker die. And the blue prince answered, Now greet our moon of honey in the sky. Half fainting with rapture, the princess fell into his arms, and from all sides of the great hall arose the cries, The heir! The heir! Long live our future king! The eldest born! The oracles fulfilled! Such was the origin of lawn tennis, which began with people tossing pigeons to each other in imitation of the prince and princess in the palace hall. And this is why love plays so great a part in the game. And that is how the match was arranged between the Blue Prince and the Princess of Paphlagonia. And welcome back. That was our story for the week. I have to be honest with you, before Anne picked it, I was completely unfamiliar with this one. But after reading it, I was totally charmed by the colorful princes, the magic car sailing through the skies, and all that astonished reproofing. We hope you enjoyed it too. 
Let's do some feedback for Podcastle episode 81, Jason D. Whitman's On Bookstores, Burners, and Origami. An alternate history steampunk of a tale with Japanese golems, book burners, and Edgar Allan Poe. Some listeners were reminded of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Not only because books were burned, but because tales were committed to memory. C. Duggar said, I love books and I hate the burning of them. Anytime a burner gets his, I'm there. Nice. Ka said he enjoyed it because it was steampunk, but it wasn't about being steampunk. It was about Hitomi and the other characters. It worked as a story with a setting that didn't intrude too much on the real action. Muse of Chaos said, I thought this was a fantastic story, a well-thought-out hodgepodge of alternate history, cultural relativism, and literary commentary, all wrapped up in a big age of steam. Others, though, didn't find the hodgepodge as appealing and had a few issues with how much was crammed into the story and how some things could have been explored further, particularly the character of Hitomi. Aitan said, I would like to have known why a Japanese woman not only immigrated on her own, but also moved halfway across the U.S. This is commonplace nowadays, but in the 19th century, this would have been quite notable. M. Brennan added, as someone who really likes history and cultural difference and all the neat stuff, the fact that you have an independent young Japanese woman living in Minneapolis in the late 19th century really should have shaped the narrative in ways that go beyond she knows origami and calligraphy. As always, you can get in on all the story discussions at forum.escapeartist.net, where intelligent commoners can be found folding incredibly smart golem origami. Not-so-intelligent commenters? We don't really have any of those, but if we did, I can assure you, their origami would be most unimaginative. Well, that's all we have for this time, my lords and ladies. It's been fun, but our court magician's getting restless, the pigeon on my shoulder's looking way too nervous, so I think it's about time to take this magic car out for a spin. Until then, thanks for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next time with a discourse from Benjamin Rosenbaum as Anne Lucky Month continues. So have fun storming the Podcastle, and we'll see you all next week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Thomas Randolph said, We sit and talk and kiss away the hours as chastely as the morning dews kiss flowers touch her like my beads with devout care and come into my courtship as my prayer. <laughs>